Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. We are each leaving a legacy, something that we're known for. Ben Colburn was not only known for his wonderful ministry of the word, but for 40 years he blessed the IH Convention crowd in Dayton, Ohio with his ministry at the organ. This sermon was preached at the Kansas State Holiness Association camp meeting in 2001, and he titles it, The Price of Revival. Good to be in Kansas State uh, camp meeting again. It's not been all that long. It seems like time rushes by so fast. But uh, those four or five years now that it's been, and back one more time, and Brother Pierpoint reminded me before service that 22 years ago, uh, we were together at camp meeting in Wichita. And uh, I didn't have any gray hairs then. And so that means I've gotten a lot wiser since then. <laughs> you hope. <laughs> and uh, a lot of other things happened since then. But we had good time, good memories from those days. It's good to be with the Pierpoints and also the Vernons and uh, Sister Troyer and Brother Snyder. The only thing I could see on the camp announcement is that I'm kind of out of place. I'm not from Hobesound. And uh, my wife's not here. And uh, that makes me the oddball, I guess. But anyway, we'll do our best. And I told Tim back there that somebody's going to have to take my wife's place of doing this. I think Brother Lee's already volunteered. <laughs> but we'll do what we can. <clears throat> and my wife would like to have been along, but because of other duties and responsibilities, these uh, days that uh, I would be here while she's busy there. So uh, she's thinking about us. And I imagine that some of us will do a whole lot of thinking about her too before it's over. Trust that you've been praying and minding the Lord already in preparation for uh, our camp meeting services. And as I've told many of you in the past, uh, I haven't come to make myself your favorite preacher don't intend to try to do that, really. But I have come to try to preach to you the truth. And if it's truth from God's word, then you should take it and eat it, right? Ezekielate the whole roll and you'll have to, too. Amen. And I will, too. So let's pray much and let's do our part to cooperate with the Spirit of God. And whatever he says for you to do, you be quick to do it. Will you? I just uh, closed out 
the John T. Hatfield camp up near Greenfield, Indiana on Sunday night. And uh, so I'm still in the mood for if you know anything about Hatfield and reading his uh, biography and, and about him, you'll know that up from that old camp meeting platform, uh, if people went to sleep like Brother Lee was talking a while ago, he just threw songbooks out there. And so I'm practiced up. I'm practiced up. I just left there. And uh, guess what? There's a whole stack of songbooks under here. <laughs> so I'm prepared. The only trouble of it is if I throw them, I might lose my notes. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> well, tonight I want to do our best to speak to you uh, from a very familiar revival text of the Bible, the Old Testament, Second Chronicles chapter 7. And you know the scripture well before we even start. But I trust as we read it one more time that God will freshen it to our hearts and minds. And by the way, while you're turning, I hope you do bring your mind to service with you. Bring your Bible. Bring your mind. Hello? And bring your heart. Okay? That's a good combination. And hopefully you can use all three of them and go away better than you came. I know you've stood and you've shook, shook hands and had a time like that. I just will leave it this way. If you like to stand and rest yourself, you feel free to do that while I read. If you don't want to stand, then don't stand. Is that all right? But don't blame me when you want to stand and can't stand. All right. I'm going to read to you from Second Chronicles chapter 7 and beginning at verse 12. Verse 12. Solomon had prayed and God had heard his prayer and made this response. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, and mine ears attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now have I chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. Ending our reading at verse 16. If you're standing, you may be seated. Verse 14 has become a verse that many of us have committed to memory, a scripture that definitely has been used again and again as God's promise to his people, even in our day, of revival. And many tonight have referred to this verse 
as the revival text of the Bible. And I think that's rightly so. Because in this little verse, there is contained everything that's necessary, everything that's needed to cause a genuine revival. Everything. And I come to you tonight with a heart that is beating hard to see revival happen again. Amen. My desire is that revival shall happen again. Um, I, I can't uh, tell you tonight exactly why I feel like it may tarry. But I know one thing, that God's promise is true. And he will, in his time, if we do our part, he will keep his part of the promise. Amen. This word revival simply implies a religious declension. We wouldn't need revival if there wasn't any religious declension. A decline in spirituality, a decline in religion, if you will, produces the need for revival. I was reminded what uh, Tory made a statement or wrote and I read about the definition of revival. He simply states that revival is nothing more and nothing less than a waking up of the spiritual life of the church that leads to the conversion of sinners. Let me give it to you one more time. It's nothing more and nothing less than a waking up of spiritual life of the church that leads to the conversion of sinners. Amen. That ought to be our purpose. That ought to be our goal tonight. I've traveled around enough and uh, met numbers of people who have been interested in revival across the years, but it's been interesting to look back and see the reasons for their motivation. Why did they want revival? And I could begin way back with just some of them wanting it for their own personal benefit, some wanting it so their church would be noticed, some so their church would grow, and right on down the line. You know what I mean. Some just so we could say we're having a great time. But the purpose that should motivate us to pray and trust God for revival is that sinners will be converted. Not everywhere, and probably a whole lot less tonight than before, but there are many places across the land, uh, church-wise, that feel like you haven't been to church unless you've had a hallelujah breakdown. You ever been there? Huh? I like the hallelujah breakdowns, okay? Don't get me wrong. And in fact, I would vote tonight that we probably aren't seeing as much of it as we ought to. But on the other hand, I have been in those places where we haven't been to church unless we experience that kind of an atmosphere. But it doesn't produce the conversion of sinners. And I believe tonight the text that we have read, this familiar verse, the prayer of verse 14 or the instruction God has given is Something tonight that every one of us should look at very carefully for ourselves. 
I know it's very dangerous for us to use familiar scriptures like this because we tend to, well, I know that, I know what it says, and we just take it for granted and look over it. But again and again, we need to stop and really try to digest it and ask God to apply it to our hearts by His Spirit. Revivals cost something. They're not free. Did you ever hear anybody tell you in your lifetime, there's nothing free in this world? Huh? That's right. Occasionally, I sell some things for um, businesses and maybe even churches and what have you, pens and pencils and those kind of things, you know. And it's interesting that people will brighten up and they'll get excited about giving them something that may cost a nickel, a dime, a quarter, whatever it may be, just giving it to them and say, here, this is yours. That, that's why we give pens and pencils away at church, okay? That's why when you go to the drugstore or to the bank at Christmas time, they give you a calendar that has their information on it. Why? Because you say, I got something free. Woo, wonderful. Huh? Even if you don't use it, you want a half a dozen of them because it's free. All right? Go up and down the highway, go up and down the, uh, the, the mall or go by the business place and see the word what? Free. And every one of you women will run to get what's free. And some of you men too. Huh? We're always looking for something free. But let me remind us tonight, there is nothing free in this world. Revivals are not free. They cost. And I'm not talking about financial, though they do that too, but that's not what I'm talking about tonight. And so with these thoughts in mind, I want us to look more closely one more time at this revival text of the Bible. And let's find exactly what God's price, the price God commanded for revival in Solomon's day and the price that he demands for revival yet tonight. If you were to go to buy an automobile, you'd probably look at that tag in the window, right? It tells you what all the standard items are. In other words, just the car itself and enough to get it down the road. But then it began to list a long list of accessories. Oh, it has this package and that costs so much. And then it has, oh, it has that gadget and ooh, that's that much more. And right? How many of you bought a vehicle in the last 10 years and paid just the basic price? No options. That's what I thought. I can remember the days when we bought them without air conditioning. Or power steering. And automatic transmissions were optional when I was a kid. I'm not near as old as you think I am either. But let's look at the price tag tonight for revival. And the price tag's the same for Kansas State Holiness Camp as it is for any of your churches and the same for any other camp meeting or any other church. It doesn't change for any of us. 
The very first thing on the list on the price tag tonight is something that all of us avoid as much as possible. For the first thing on the price list was humility before God. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves. And we kind of like to run past that word. If my people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And oh, we like to really attack prayer, don't we? But I want to tell you something tonight. If we are going to get our prayers through, and if our prayers are going to be effective, there first of all must be this fact of humility. I don't know a whole lot about cooking, but a little. Enough that I could get by on my own without scorching the the water. And I can tell you that there are some recipes that it doesn't make any difference at all what you put in with what and mix up. It'll turn out okay. Just grab this, that, and the other, whatever the recipe says, dump it in there, stir it up, it's done. But there are some other recipes you dare not do that. If it says blend these certain ingredients together first and set them aside, that's what it means. You don't, you don't dump it all together and blend it and set it aside. It won't work. And that's what I kind of believe that this verse of Scripture is trying to tell us tonight. God's simply telling us this is what it takes to have revival and this is the order in which it's got to be done. Humility. I wonder how long it's been since any of us here could say tonight we have had a piece of humble pie. You see, it's something none of us enjoy. Our natures go against humble pie. And I don't believe it makes difference tonight how well saved or sanctified you are. Humble pie doesn't taste good whether you are or not. (laughs) That may help you get it down, but... huh? None of us like to be humiliated. It hurts. It stings. It burns. It takes away our shout. It's like sticking a pin in a fully inflated balloon. And we avoid it every chance we get. And guess what? We come to the place of prayer. We fall on our knees. We bear our heart open to the Lord. Begin to cry, oh God, we need revived. We need help. We're desperate. And he begins to show us some other things. Huh? He never allows us to get by. Some time ago, I've tried to 
think about this matter of humility and I was doing some reading and came across the statement. Let me say this first of all. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me just back up. I was thinking, how do we humble ourselves before God? What, what really was it here God was trying to say to Solomon? And I believe what he was trying to say is this. Look back, if you will, think about for a while the purity and the perfection and the holiness, the loving kindness, the mercies, or even the character of God himself. And if you get a good look at who God really is and what he is, you'll have no problem with this business of humility. You remember that Isaiah saw a vision? You remember it? He said, I saw the Lord high, lifted up, and sitting on his throne, and his train filled the temple. He saw the seraphims. He saw all of those heavenly beings that were crying one to another and saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Watch as he sees the doorposts moving and he hears the voice crying to him and the house being filled with smoke. And what did he say? Woe is me. Woe is me because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And he went ahead to tell us why. Woe is me for I have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. A glimpse of God in his holiness and in his perfection will humiliate any of us if we really see it. If we look at how holy and how perfect and how just and how kind, how long-suffering that God really is and then contrast that with our own sinfulness and our own unworthiness and our own ingratitude, it isn't long until... We find ourselves trying to, like they say back in southern Indiana, to find a hole and crawl in it. And we must humble ourselves not only before God, but many times before others. And here's what I wanted to insert right here tonight. False humility will not work. False humility will never accomplish revival. Amen. The statement I read that has stuck with me down across these weeks is this. That humility is like underwear. It's necessary but it's indecent when it shows. Come on. It's needed, but it's indecent when it shows. Humility. Pretty good definition, isn't it? I hesitate, but let me... Yeah, okay. 
Numbers of years ago, I was in a certain church for revival. It's not the one you're thinking about. It's another one. Okay? There were problems that when I arrived, and it wasn't because of my arrival, but there was difficulties long before I showed up. I just made them worse. Not on purpose. Okay? Actually... The pastor was on the verge of being voted out in a very ruthless, ruthless church squabble. And you ought to try being an evangelist and go in and preach and sing and try to have meeting in that kind of atmosphere. The church was well divided, and so we started. I didn't know all of that at that time. Thank the Lord I didn't. But as we progressed, the meeting got tighter and tighter and tighter. And like my good friend the days gone by, H.E. Darnell would say, bless God, let them get tight. Because he said the tighter they get, the bigger the explosion. <laughs> well, needless to say, by Sunday, things were so tight, we had an explosion. I preached. I gave an invitation. No one responded. The pastor came forward. He said a few words to try to admonish people to mind the Lord. He was weeping. He was broken. And then I shall never forget as one dear lady on this side of the congregation stood. She was kind of the mother of Israel. You know what? One of those kind. She'd been there forever. A lot of her family was there. They were on one side and several others on another. Without any tear, without any emotion, just like I am right now, she stood there and she called the pastor by name, Sister Evans, and she said, well, I guess you have to do what you got to do. And so she proceeded to do. She proceeded to tell the church that they all knew that her family and certain others were very opposed to their present pastor. And she said, I haven't had you over to our house to eat because we didn't want you around. And she says, we've talked about you. And we've run you down. Huh? And after she got all that taken care of, then she said, Brother Pierpoint, Brother Coburn, we've even talked about you this week. And we have even said that you've been too hard and too harsh on us. And she stood for quite a while and cleared herself. And she said, well, I've done what I had to do. By the time she finished her little clearing, there were three or four people at the altar, younger people who were sobbing their hearts out and we had prayer. When we left, the service was past one o'clock by then. And when we left, this woman and another younger lady were left in the church with me and the pastor standing at the foyer ready to lock the door and go our way. These two ladies came by they were conversing. 
They weren't the least bit serious in what they were having to say by then. And when they came back, I called this lady by name, having known her several years. And I said to her, I really appreciate what you had to say this morning. And I really appreciate your openness and your honesty. And with that, she shrugged her shoulders and kind of smiled. And she says, well, again, you just have to do what you got to do. When they were gone, the pastor said to me, well, I wonder if it's genuine or not. And I said, well, I'm not real sure, but I'll guarantee you one thing. We'll find out tonight if it is. Because if that was genuine humility, it made a difference. And I'm not going to tell you anymore except to tell you we went back on Sunday night and it was tight again. False humility will not work. And sometimes we not only have to humble ourselves before God as he deals with us about issues in our own lives, but we have to deal with those at home and humble ourselves to those people that we have, no, that have, no. Yes, that have to live with us. And we have to humble ourselves to those we work with. Come on. And even those we worship with. And those that we have not always shown the spirit of Christ to. Huh? We are human. Come on. And occasionally we have to use our spiritual reverse transmission. Huh? And so I just quickly ask you tonight, where's the brokenness and where's the humility? They go hand in hand. How long has it been since you humbled yourself? Genuinely. To your family, to your friends, to your co-workers, to the people you worship with at church. Or even to God. And God says that kind of brokenness. That kind of contriteness. I will not despise. I'll not turn it away. I'll set up and take notice. Amen. And if you want God to listen to your prayers. For camp meeting and for lost people you're praying for. And if you're really interested tonight. In seeing a revival in your own heart. And in your church then I'd admonish you, do what you don't want to do, and that is humble yourself. Let's look at the other on the price tag. Prayer. Not only must we humble ourselves, but we must pray. And pray. And that's one of the main characteristics of a godly life, prayer. I don't have to tell you tonight, there's prayer and then there's prayer. Huh? I think that some people's prayers are, 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 are prayerless prayers. Huh? Many times they're nothing more than just unwritten rituals that are made up out of familiar phrases we heard that person say or somebody else say and we picked up on this one over here and that one over here and none of them, none of those phrases, all of them put together couldn't hardly spark 
a bit of fire. If my people will pray, and that's not praying prayers that lack strong faith and strong desire and strong, strong interceding on behalf of our needs. That's not the kind of prayer I think the Lord's talking about. Most of our praying nowadays, I'm afraid, is prayer that lacks real divine electricity. So that when we fall on our knees and we begin to pray with confidence in God and with that desire that we've got to have, we must have, and we must get our prayers through regardless, that's the kind of praying I think we must experience. I know that it's harder for some of you old ones to pray like you used to pray. It's work to pray. Do you know that? I have several little older ladies in my congregation uh, back home and uh, they're good women. I believe they're godly women and they love God. They're not able to pray like they one time could pray. And so, you know what? The devil has defeated them to saying if you can't pray real earnestly and get into this thing and really give it 100% of your physical strength, your prayers aren't any good. And so a few months ago, I told them, I was a little rough on them, Brother Lee. I told them in a, in a, a little meeting that we had, uh, I said, uh, something's got to happen around here. And I said, I counted the other day at my desk, I counted eight of you ladies that really don't have much to do during the day, but sit around. And I said, you could be having a prayer meeting at least once a week. And I said, I don't mean you don't have anything to do for you have your own responsibilities and your own duties, but as far as meeting a, a, a schedule of duties and having to do this and be there and get that, you don't have that responsibility. And so I said to them, some of you need to get out of your overstuffed chair and, and quit petting your kitty. And pray. And one of them lives in one of these high rises for older folk, you know, and she thinks that she's got to wait on every one of them, take out their trash, carry them something to eat, and do, you know, all that stuff. And I said, some of you need to quit running noodles up and down the halls. And pray. And then I started trying to encourage them, why don't you come to church a little bit early and pray? And so we started that. And with that, I went back there to try to help them. Now here we are, Sister Evans. And I walked in and got on my knees and here's these other little gals hardly can make it down on their knees. And I heard something like... And so I said, hey, we've got to get in earnest here. I said, it's all right to pray out loud and say things that 
we can hear. If I hear you praying and asking God to give us revival, and if I hear you praying and God helping you to pray about it, then that helps me to get in there and pray for the same thing, and we pull the load together. But I said, I can't understand your mumbles. And I said, you don't have to bury your face. Look up. God's there. And I said, let's pray. And one of them said, Sister Evans, well, Brother Coburn, I I can't pray like I used to pray. My my voice wears out. Any of us' voice will wear out if we don't use it and then try to. Hello. We begin to pray with some confidence in a God who we know will hear and will answer our prayer and begin to pray with a little bit of divine electricity. You know, you may not have a big mouth like me, but you've got a mouth. And you can get in earnest and you can begin to really call on God in prayer. And that's what it's going to take along with the humility. The third thing mentioned here is that we must seek the face of God. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. Now I don't believe that we have to look very far to find that people are looking at a whole lot of other things besides God's face tonight. My dad was not a Christian man when we children were growing up. In fact, He never really made a profession until just shortly before his death. But I can remember many, many times, neither was my dad one that would be quick to discipline us. He just left everything to mom. But you watch out. Because if he ever did do any discipline, he didn't need to do it very often. But one of these things was, brother, when he'd say, Benjamin! And if he added car on there, watch out. And then he'd say, look at me. Look me right here. Yes, sir. Get your head up. He didn't say my eyes, he said my head. He said, look me right in the eye. Ooh, I hated that. I hated that because it seemed to me like my dad could look right way down on the inside. I didn't have a ghost of a chance if my dad made me look him in the eye. (laughs) And the Lord simply said that you and I as his people must seek his face. Look him in the eye, if you will. And he never intended for us to come as strangers, but he intended for us to come as children who go to a loving father or a loving mother. There wasn't any doubt but what my dad loved me and that he provided for me and he cared for me, but it was my own guilt and my own shame that made me bow my head and refuse to look him in the eye. I can look back on it after these many years and tell you that there was love in those eyes. 
My mom used to say, you know, when she made us go to the alley and get the switches off the bush, and she'd really try them out on our legs. And she'd say later, I do it because I love you. My brother said, Mommy, please quit loving us so much. <laughs> huh? God never intended for us to come as a stranger, but as his child and look him in the face. Hmm? And he wants us to look him full in his face so that we can see his will and his way and so that we can see how he is that we will be more like him. Seek my face. And I hasten on tonight or he said, if you're going to really pay the price for revival, there must be the forsaking of all sin. And turn from your wicked ways. That simply means that we rid our lives of all that is evil in God's sight. Did you catch it? In God's sight. Well, I don't think it's so bad. That's not real evil. But what does God say about it? It's not your opinion. It's not what you think or how you see it. But it's getting rid of anything in your life that God says is evil. Amen. Reminds me of several years ago when I first started my ministry. Very first revival meeting I preached. It, it was a toughie. Really, it was. I didn't try to deceive the pastor. He called and said he heard I was a good evangelist and I never told him that I wasn't because I didn't know. I don't know where he heard that from. But I had never preached a revival till then. And we went. And as God led me night after night, I began to deal with some issues that were very evident in the church. A lot of new converts there, couples. And I would tell them, Brother Evans... Don't take my word for it. You just go home, get down on your knees, and you ask God, Lord, what would you have me do about this? And I said, whatever he tells you will be perfectly okay with me. Well, those new converts had no better sense than to do it. And you'd be surprised. They came back night after night and before we even got the song service started. It was, oops, can I tell you what the Lord told me last night? I'd love to hear it. I'll tell you what, it puts some of the old timers to shame. I'm talking about finding out what God says about some things. And what's evil for you may not be evil for the other guy in all cases. Let God fine tune you. Amen. Let him do the fine tuning and make you what you need to be. This matter of turning from our wicked ways is simply allowing the Spirit of God to search us out and to reveal to us anything about our conduct or our behavior or about our person that displeases him. And then it's our place simply to turn from it. That means to to go the opposite direction, to do just exactly the opposite of what we've been doing or to walk away from it and leave it alone and let it go for good. 
never to return to it. Amen. That was the price tag in Solomon's day for revival and the price hasn't changed. There's been no inflation and there's been no deflation. The price is the same. And it's just this simple. When you pay the price, you get what you pay for. When you go to buy that automobile or whatever it is and they tell you this is the bottom dollar, this is what it takes, you either pay it or you don't drive it away. Huh? And you know what? It's simply that clear tonight concerning this matter of revival. We pay the price or we don't get it. And a lot of people will ask the question, why is revival tarrying in these days? And I have to come back to the word of God and be honest and say it's because we're not paying the price that it takes to have it. In closing, that doesn't mean I'm done. It just means I'm winding down. <laughs> There's two things that I want us to consider tonight. Two definite reasons which we have for expecting revival. I know some people, especially the younger generation, who has given up. And they say there's no hope. There's no help. The days of revival are gone. I preach to one of those kind every Sunday. I don't believe it's true. It's just up to us. And there are two reasons tonight why we have to expect revival in our day. The first one is simply because God's intimate relationship to the church causes me to feel we have hope for revival. God cares about his people. God cares about this camp meeting. God cares about what's going on here these days. Come on. He claims us as his property and his possession. He said, if my people, I like that. I used to like it when my, when my parents would say, you're my child. And because you're mine, that means you're going to get this. Or you can have that. Huh? God says, if my people, which are called by my name, huh? don't you think he wants us to have the best? Don't you think tonight, friends, that we have at least a bit of a chance and we at least have some hope of having revival in these days if we're really God's people? Amen. Just simply the fact that God claims us as one of his own. And not only that, but he puts his name on us and calls us by his name. That sparked some hope in my heart tonight to think that days of revival are not past because God claims me. I want my kids to have the best. I do. Most all of us would say we'd like for them to have it better than we had it when we came up. I'm not sure that's good, but, huh? 
But really none of us would stand back and watch our son or our daughter do without something that was vital and necessary, would we, for their own survival. We would go to extremes to provide it. I want to tell you, God calls us by his name. We're part of his family. And don't you think tonight God's not going to look out for his church and his people and his children? The second thing is, God's clear and definite promise right here in the scripture. God's promises are true tonight, people. And he said, if we will pay that price, then he will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin and he will heal our land. And that promise is just as true tonight as the one that tells us he will supply every one of our needs according to his riches and glory. He'll be true to it. And the fact that we are who we are, his church, his people, called by his name, and the fact that we have his promise to stand on, encourage me tonight and tell me we have definite reason, good reason, for believing God for revival. Amen. The question comes down to this. Will you personally, will I personally pay this price? Will I do my part? And I want to tell you tonight, I can have revival if none of you do. And I can have revival if all of us do. It depends on me. And what I'm willing to pay. And God said, if you will, I will. Amen. Shall we stand? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. 